Statehood Considerations for Washington, D.C., a discussion about history, policy, and possible paths for it or not for this latest congressional push. Professor Gerard Magliaca from the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. So glad to be here with you. Thank you so much for making this show part of your day. And we've got a great episode today. As you heard in the intro, we're uh, going to be talking about this latest congressional push to turn Washington, D.C. into our 51st state, thus giving it this representation in Congress. And of course, that means they'll have representation in the House of Representatives and also the Senate if it gets pushed through successfully. But before I get ahead of myself, let's welcome our guest who's going to help us unpack all of these issues. Let's welcome Professor Gerard. Magliaka to the show. Welcome. Hi, Lawrence. Nice to be here. Wonderful having you. I, we needed an expert to go through this. This is a pretty big story, I think, in the news, and we wanted to you know, attach some legal knowledge and some legal horsepower to it. So I think any discussion about you know, the policy and the legal components of creating another state, I think in particular with Washington, D.C., also probably involves talking about what Washington, D.C. is. And I, everyone knows it's our capital, but it's more than that. It's a federal district. It's a city. It's a combination of things. So can you tell us, besides being our capital, what what is Washington, D.C.? And then can you also tell us how it got its name? Sure. So Washington, D.C. is not a state. It is a federal district run by the federal government. And it got its name because uh, apparently Columbia was a way of describing either America or things in the Western Hemisphere back in the day because it was sort of related to Columbus. And so that was the name that they decided to give the district that Washington, D.C. is in uh, when it was created around 1800. That was the feminine name of Columbus, right? Right. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Now, what I learned uh, just through my research for this show was how many times the capital seemed to move. And I I think I was at least sort of aware from my history classes when I was a kid that it wasn't always in D.C., that it was moved there at one time. But I didn't realize it had a lot of locations. And so obviously it did like a 10 year temporary stint in Philadelphia. But it moved before then. It moved around quite a bit. I think a lot to do with just sort of what was going on in the country with the British and, you know, some of the follow up incursions and battles and things like that. Basically, the capital was wherever Congress could meet. And so can you tell us about that history where Washington, D.C.'s place is solidified, just the the mile markers? Walk us through that process. Right. So the founding fathers did not want the national capital to be permanently in one state. Now, first of all, that would have given that one state more influence over national politics than the other states. And of course, no one state would have been allowed to have that kind of influence. Then another thing they were concerned about, ironically, given recent events, was that if an angry mob came to where Congress was meeting, then they would be dependent on the state government to protect them. And they weren't sure that that was going to be good enough because there was an incident in Philadelphia during the revolutionary period where there were soldiers who were upset about Congress not funding their pension benefits enough, and they kind of came to protest and Congress had to leave town because the state of Pennsylvania didn't really do anything to protect them. So they wanted to avoid these kinds of problems by creating a special federal district and federal city for the capital that wouldn't be in any state and would allow the federal government to have the power to police things and control things within the close vicinity of the capital. 
And then there was a the compromise of 1790, the 1790 Residence Act, where they picked a location. So this was a site that was picked by George Washington, our first president himself. And then that was a gradual process. So tell us about how the land was allocated towards creating that new federal district. Well, there was a lot of discussion about where the capital should be located. And ultimately, a compromise was worked out that put it in Washington, we see where it's located now because it was kind of about equidistant between the northern most part of the country and the southernmost part. It was on a major river and Washington himself was very interested in the Potomac because that's where Mount Vernon was. And then the mechanics of that was they got Virginia and Maryland to basically give land to what became the district. And then That was how the federal enclave was created, although none of the government buildings really were erected or none of the national administration moved there until 1800. And that kind of played into what's going on today. Uh, There's the obviously the desire to bring congressional representation to those people that live within Washington, D.C. But when they uh, gave this land or took this land from from both Maryland and Virginia, the people that were in that area basically lost some representation. They lost, uh, I guess, a little bit of power in their vote. And then came up the 23rd Amendment, which, as I understand it, solidified the right to vote in D.C. If you're a D.C. citizen, the right to vote for president and vice president. But what I didn't understand is that what could they vote for before the 23rd Amendment? Can you walk us through that a little bit? The answer was they could vote for nothing before the 23rd Amendment. Oh, wow. Washington, D.C. was governed by Congress all the way from 1800 until the 1970s. And basically that meant that there was a congressional committee in the House and in the Senate that was in charge of D.C. government. And that was a problem for many reasons, partly because, of course, the people who were doing the governing didn't necessarily live in Washington, D.C., and often lived in another part of the country. And so that was very unsatisfactory. That was why in the 1970s, they moved to basically create a kind of city municipal government for Washington, D.C., which is the government that they have now, where people vote for the mayor and city council like any other major city. That came forth through the 1973 Home Rule Act, right? Right. And so it's interesting because, you know, Washington, D.C., you know, created in the Constitution not to be a state, never intended to be a state. But in a lot of ways, we treat it in our country like a state, you know, for purposes of taxations, uh, service in the armed services and even diversity jurisdiction. So can you give us some of the examples of how even though it's not a state, not intended to be a state, we've still sort of treated it like a state? Right. So first of all, people who live in Washington, D.C., of course, are United States citizens. So they're treated in the same way, except for voting for members of Congress as other United States citizens. Secondly, since this Home Rule Act was passed, Congress has stayed out of D.C.'s local government for the most part. So things that happen within the District of Columbia are basically no different than what state governments do in other states, say, take a small state like Rhode Island or something. Uh, So in that sense, it's similar. It's also treated that way for purposes of really anything else, whether it's uh, the way you get into federal court and so on. So for the most part, the only difference is they cannot vote for members of the House and the Senate. They cannot vote on constitutional amendments because they're not a state. And their local government could be taken away from them in theory, right? If Congress were to decide to withdraw 
the power to have a mayor, for example, they could do that. It's just that that's not been seriously entertained, at least in the last number of years. Well, and and, uh, citizens of Washington, D.C. are not the only citizens of the country not allowed to vote for congressional representation. It also happens to be kind of the plight of the military as they serve overseas in United States territories that are not also considered states, correct? Well, some overseas uh, personnel can vote by absentee ballot in their home states, right? We saw that even after the most recent election. But you're right that there are there are places like, for example, Puerto Rico, Guam, territories of the United States that do not get the right to vote for any federal office, including president. So the district is not the only place that's treated somewhat like that. When, as I understand it, this recent attempt to bring in uh, congressional representation to the District of Columbia, this isn't the first attempt. They tried this back in 1978 with an amendment to the Constitution, the District of Columbia Rights Amendment. And so tell us what happened with that. And then I think there was another 2013 attempt, but a different methodology. So kind of walk us through some of the uh, happenings of those two different events. Right. So a constitutional amendment was proposed by Congress to the states in 1978. It got the necessary two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate. And it would have basically said that for purposes of voting for members of Congress, you would treat the District of Columbia just like uh, any other state. Uh, It didn't get anywhere close to the number of states necessary for ratification Now, you could say that could be because it would have diluted the power of the existing states by creating, in effect, a 51st state for congressional purposes. And also that by then, people kind of knew that uh, folks in the district tended to vote for Democrats. So Republicans weren't as keen on having a new entity that would basically vote for Democrats. So it just never got anywhere close to being ratified. Now, then there was an effort a few years ago to do something in the House of Representatives whereby you could say the House of Representatives, of course, has a non-voting member from the District of Columbia. Eleanor Holmes Norton has been that person for a long time. And there was a thought of either giving her some voting rights within the House or perhaps just the House saying, well, we, we can give voting rights to members from the district. That's a more controversial proposition and it never really got anywhere. Most of our states have been added since our Declaration of Independence, and so we do have a tradition of adding a lot of new territories that eventually become... We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Professor Gerard Magliaca. We'll pick up right where we left off in the next episode when I ask the professor about our traditional way for creating new states, how that would apply to the Federal District of Washington, D.C., as well as the legal and policy considerations for creating that 51st state. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.